Hello and welcome to the Physical Attraction Book Club. Over the next series of episodes, we're going to be talking about Jason Hickel's book, The Divide. Hickel is an anthropologist who works at LSE, and this book is essentially a history of global inequality, how the world's got to be so unequal, and what we might be able to do about it in the future. Along the way, he aims to dispel a lot of myths about how this inequality came to be, what perpetuates it, and generally how the global economic system functions to do so. As you might expect, it's not a particularly cheerful read. His conclusion is that, essentially, we need a pretty big restructuring of the global economy and international relations, because otherwise, inequality is baked into the system by the institutions that exist. The traditional solutions that are proposed to the problem of global poverty, which are, generally speaking, economic growth and charitable giving, are actually pretty ineffective at making a difference, according to Hickel. And this case is made throughout the book with a variety of different historical examples. Now, what I would say is that clearly Hickel is coming from a very specific perspective here, and he has his own point of view. What I would say is that I looked around to try and find lots of different contradictory versions of this point of view, alternative uh, versions of the history of global inequality, and I found that lots of them simply didn't touch on the issues and the topics that Hickel brings out. And their explanations there are very hand-wavy and simplistic in a lot of different cases. And I think that while one could criticise the absolutism with which Hickel holds his point of view here, if, if your alternative explanation of global inequality and why it persists despite the uh, attempts made to eradicate it over the last 70 years doesn't deal with the issues that Hickel talks about, that we will talk about in great detail, then you have to view it as flawed and incomplete. So obviously he's coming from one perspective, but I actually think that it's a counterbalancing perspective to the predominant attitude towards these issues, which is, if we think about them at all, to simply hand wave away and assume that they will resolve themselves over time. And that's actually even less satisfying than the perspective that Hickel gives in his book, even if people will argue about the political interpretation of it. Now, before we get into the book in more detail, I think it's worth discussing briefly something that struck me about the book, which is the topic of history education and what its actual purpose is. Long-time listeners will know that I love history. If I hadn't studied physics, it would have been my subject, and it's the lens through which I look at a lot of scientific developments as well. Of course, we've even had entire history shows in the back catalogue of this podcast. And society does view it as important that children are educated about history. But what's the purpose of that historical education? Quite often when you ask this, some people get very exercised about the importance of teaching the kids the history of the nation, perhaps to instill a sense of national identity and national pride, a community and a sense of togetherness and shared cultural context that comes through nationalism. Naturally, none of this stuff is apolitical. And of course, history seldom is. In fact, arguably, history is never apolitical, because politics is simply the means by which power is exerted and uh, wielded in societies. And it's, it's, a, it's a branch of that general category of how humans relate to each other and the institutions we construct. We've done these things throughout history. And therefore, even though the historical institutions may only parallel our own today, or there are obviously factors that exist today that aren't that paralleled by things that have happened in the past, that you can't ever divorce the politics entirely from the history because of these parallels that exist. So let me give you an example. I mean, you might think that the story of how the Roman Republic fell and became an empire is not all that relevant to today's politics, relating as it does to what happened 2,000 years ago. Many empires and kingdoms and fiefdoms have taken over that territory since. 
But you can tell that story from different sets of perspectives. And these narratives in themselves, these ideas, have immense political power over the way that we run our lives. One reading might view the fall of the Roman Republic as a cautionary tale about how demagogues can flout the norms and traditions of a democracy. They pose as populists and eventually violently seize power for themselves. These would be the figures like Marius, Sulla and Caesar, who wrecked democratic norms and took over the democracy uh, in the course of appealing to their own populist base. There are individual details in these narratives themselves that seem echoed in today's society, like, for example, the fact that normalising the prosecution of political enemies for corruption actually incentivised those enemies to stay in power for as long as possible. Whether that meant benefiting from the immunity to prosecution that, say, a consul got, which caused many of these people to run for consulships and praetorships again and again and again, even though the convention was that you retire from public life after a certain number of terms in office, or indeed whether it meant staying at the head of an army who were personally loyal to you, at which point you don't need to worry about the legal immunity you get from being in office, and you can just say, don't quote laws to men who have swords, as Pompey the Great supposedly did. Another reading of that story, though, might suggest that it's a story about how the establishment will boneheadedly and doggedly resist necessary reforms in a desperate attempt to maintain a grip on power in a shockingly unequal system and that their boneheaded and dogged resistance of necessary reforms is the exact thing that eventually makes that system delegitimized and gives the populists power. It makes the system too sclerotic to fix its own problems and contradictions, and that this eventually gives rise to revolution and bloodshed. You could look at the situation and note, for example, that after generations of unrest and civil war and intense partisan division in the Roman Republic, the Roman people were happy to accept a dictator in the form of an emperor who simply maintained the illusion of democracy as a comforting fiction while not so secretly wielding absolute power. These are just a few aspects of it. But look at the situation in the US recently. Look at how throughout the Western world, and especially amongst the young, the number of people who believe that democracy is at an all-time low are at all-time highs. I mean, how apolitical are these narratives in that context? In Britain, we have this debate all the time when it comes to how to teach British history. I made the joke with some of my friends that the popular history of Britain begins in 1939 and ends in 1945 and doesn't include anything before or after. We are a nation who can sometimes seem obsessed with the Second World War, almost to the exclusion of all else of our history, even though in many ways the Second World War is much more relevant to the history of Germany, Russia and the USA than it is to us. I love learning about the history of the Second World War, of course, it's fascinating, but for a long time it's meant that there's been insufficient attention to the British Empire, which was the point when Britain arguably most influenced the world after all, and is arguably the era of history that has the biggest influence on how the nation is governed today. Certainly when I went to school, you could go through even studying history to age 18 and never learn about the scramble for Africa, the partition of India, and why so many different nations around the world play cricket even as we'd still learn about the Egyptians, the Tudors, and of course, the Second World War. The result then is that British people can, by and large, be ignorant of why we're the baddies in Lagan and the influence that the empire has had on world history. So our history education is inherently and inevitably politicised. 
It is biased even when it's trying not to be biased, because the people who set the curriculum are making editorial decisions. They might not want to think they are, perhaps multiple interpretations or sides to a story are put forward, but of course even in choosing what to teach and what not to teach, you are making editorial decisions. And people know this, you know, when you're watching a news programme, the stories that they cover and give prominence and precedence to, that's an editorial decision, even if you then try and portray both sides of the argument on those stories. This is important to keep in mind. That said, another way of looking at it, and one that stuck in my mind after reading this book, is that in our fear of politicising education, it means that we don't actually do that much to explain how the world came to be as it is. Or in other words, in our desire to divorce politics and history, which are almost impossible to divorce in reality, history can become a series of apolitical anecdotes, and it therefore doesn't answer people's questions. Yes, of course it's fascinating to know how the Egyptians mummified their dead. It's fascinating to learn the six wives of Henry VIII, as I drummed into my little brother's head recently when he was learning that at school. But this is a series of apolitical anecdotes that don't answer people's questions. The, the more politically relevant thing from the era of Henry VIII is the divorce of the Church of England and Protestantism from Catholicism, and how that's influenced European politics and history over the last few hundred years. And so there are so many different questions that history can answer that actually relate to what people will see on the news. Questions like, why are we allied with certain nations and adversarial towards others? How are power relations in the world decided? How did some countries become democracies and others dictatorships? How did the UN come to exist and what role does it play in international relations? Who decided which countries get to have nuclear weapons? How did we decide, eventually, on capitalism as the dominant economic system, replacing the earlier systems of feudalism and fending off a challenge in the 1980s, 1990s and so on from state communism? And then, of course, the question that Hickel's book is attempting to answer. Why are some countries still wealthy and some countries still poor? Now, your history education may well touch on some of these questions, but given how important they would seem to be to understanding the world in which we live, it's interesting that none of them are ever really asked or answered explicitly. And so I feel that actually describing how the world came to be as it is as it relates to our lives and what we see on the news and what's going on in the world around us, which is arguably one of the most relevant tasks for historians. It's actually not a primary goal of the history education that we receive, at least in schools, I don't think. Instead, I feel that it's more about creating narratives that give people a shared cultural context, in the same way that you would learn about the key books or the main aspects of literature or learning about Shakespeare or so on. It's not about explaining how the world came to be as it is, but explaining these big cultural things that, that someone high up thinks that you probably should know about. And I think that actually explaining the answers to these questions should be part of what we learn in history. I think that when people say those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it, well, it's not just about learning what happened, but also the aspects of the human experience and the parallels that exist today. Of course, if you did let me run the world, people would probably spend forever in education learning about interesting things, and no one would grow the food, and we'd all starve to death. So it's probably a good job that I actually have incredibly limited power. So let's discuss the divide, then, after that prelude, and we'll start with poverty by the numbers. There are lots of definitions of what counts as poverty. 
For a long time, the major definition that's been used is that of extreme poverty, set at an income of around $1 a day. By that standard, just under 10% of the world lives in extreme poverty. Still hundreds of millions of people, but not as many as in previous decades. Hickel argues instead for a more reasonable poverty line at $5 a day. This, he argues, is enough to have a decent shot at surviving childhood, eating enough food, and reaching a normal life expectancy, to say nothing of any material comforts in your life. So we're now saying that poverty is the point below which you're essentially having a, a, a lower chance of surviving to a normal life expectancy because of the lack of funds and the lack of money that you have, and that you're likely to be malnourished, you're likely to go hungry, you have a higher infant mortality, all these sort of things. This has nothing to do with getting to drive around in a car or having an iPhone or anything like that. It's simply that you have enough money to barely scrape by. So if you set that poverty line at $5 a day, by those standards, around half the world, perhaps 3.5 billion people, still live in poverty at the moment, earning less than $5 a day. And also by this standard, there hasn't been a great deal of improvement. From Hickel's point of view, the grand narrative of global poverty reduction has been an illusion. And we have to go back to the history of this idea. There was an idea first proposed by Harry Truman after the Second World War in his second inauguration speech, and this was that the US would start to give foreign aid to poorer countries. Truman said, quote, More than half the people in the world live in conditions approaching misery. Their economic life is primitive and stagnant. Their food is inadequate. They are victims of disease. Humanity possesses the knowledge and skill to relieve the suffering of these people. The United States must embark on a bold new program for making the benefits of our scientific advances and industrial progress available for the improvement and growth of underdeveloped areas. It must be a worldwide effort for the achievement of peace, plenty, and freedom. When this speech was actually given, there was not even a concrete plan to do so. This, this point of Truman's speech was actually a, a quite late addition to his inauguration speech. But the idea was immensely popular. It got him a hell of a lot of really positive newspaper coverage and plenty of headlines about how the US was going to lead the world out of poverty. And so this idea of poverty reduction has actually always had this political dimension to it. Hickel points out that this is because it actually, it actually frames a rather interesting and a rather feel-good narrative about global poverty for the West. The idea is that rich nations, the US leading the way and Europe following quickly after this declaration was made predominantly, the idea is that these rich nations, the US and Europe, are developed. We had better systems, better education, perhaps if you whisper it, harder and smarter workers maybe, whatever the factor is that led to it, we became developed. And then poor nations, on the other hand, in this narrative, are still developing, and they haven't figured out how to do things properly. So we are now generously lending them a hand to help them try and catch up. Naturally, this puts us, the West, and specifically the US citizens in 1949, in a pretty good position. We're masters of the world, superior, but magnanimously helping others to develop and sharing the fruits of what we've learned for the benefit of all humankind. It's sort of a historical determinism, really. All nations are progressing along this sort of great arrow of progress, and the US and Europe just happen to be ahead of the curve, and we're generously reaching down to help those backward countries who haven't developed enough yet. And I think that in a lot of ways, this is a narrative that is presented to us very often, 
and one that we really internalise. It's presented through the ideas of giving to charity, through the narrative of foreign aid and so on. How often do you think about your own uh, relationships and interactions with foreign countries? And how often, in the case of impoverished countries, is it in this sense of an obligation to give something to them, uh, to help them develop and uh, emerge from this sort of backwater state in which they are portrayed as existing? Of course, a big part of the issue that a lot of people, Hickel included, have with this narrative is that it misses out on all of the history of how some countries became developed and other countries became less developed. And it misses out on all the culpability here. After all, it's not like Truman just discovered the existence of a whole bunch of nations that were less developed than us the day before his inauguration in 1949, as if he was an alien species who had come down and discovered planet Earth with all these undeveloped savage humans on and decided that it's time to generously extend the benefits of the new alien technology and learning towards these civilizations. Truman didn't just discover the existence of a whole bunch of nations that were less developed than us, and we'd had no other kind of interaction with them at all. Because in reality, colonialism was a thing. Europeans, in one form or another, had colonised pretty much every country on Earth at one stage or another, and exerted a strong economic and militaristic influence over even the countries that did manage to remain uncolonised, like China. Truman was in charge of the US because, when the Europeans arrived, a combination of disease and warfare killed between anywhere from 90 to 95% of the Native Americans. Perhaps as many as 130 million people may have died, in the years from 1492 to 1700. And of course, over 12 million Africans were enslaved and traded as slaves in the centuries before Truman's speech. All of this, the impacts of this colonialism and so on, clearly had an impact. Historians are going to continue to debate, for example, the long-term impacts that colonialism has had on the countries that were colonised, the factors that helped lead Europeans to dominate and so on. I remember probably one of the most awkward conversations of my life was in a international scientific conference where we were debating the relative merits of colonialism. It was me as a British guy, uh, an Indian scientist, and a scientist from the Ivory Coast. And they were sort of looking to me to give an opinion on colonialism. And I simply felt that I didn't know enough about it to make any firm statements either way, while they had their argument back and forth about whether colonialism had been good or bad for their respective countries. The point is that the narrative of global poverty as development obviously leaves all of this economic exploitation and interference out and erases all of the history that's gone before it. From the perspective of someone who was colonised and who had all of their gold and natural resources carted off and some of their people enslaved, you might well think that any transfer of wealth from colonising nations to colonised would be better framed as reparations rather than development aid. It seems inevitable that, at least in terms of these natural resources and slavery, there was a huge transfer of wealth from the quote-unquote developing nations to the developed world, which, at least in some part, goes towards explaining why Europe and America are so wealthy, while these other countries are less so. Even if you are willing to let that go by the wayside and accept the rest of the development narrative, the next question is... How come developing countries haven't developed to the extent that you might expect? Around half the world's population lived in poverty in Truman's day, 
and the same is true today, by and large, by Hickel's new definition of poverty at $5 a day. In 1960, citizens in the world's richest country earned 32 times as much as citizens in the poorest country, on average. Now, if we are genuinely living in this world of development, where these poorer nations are catching up to wealthier nations, you might expect that gap to close, or at the very least not widen. But instead, it has widened, and by 2000, the ratio was 134 to 1. So it's gone from 32 to 1 to 134 to 1. Oxfam regularly produces statistics which argue that the top few dozen billionaires have as much wealth as the bottom 3.6 billion people. I know that some people will make the rising tide lifts all boats arguments and that inequality is okay as long as everyone is progressing at least a little bit, but we'll come on to that a bit later on and what I think of it. More fundamentally, the issue is that decades of development have not resolved some of the basic issues that exist in the world, and Issues that we know are fundamentally soluble with the resources that we have accessible to us today. There are still people starving to death and going hungry, despite the fact that we do actually produce enough food to feed everyone on the planet already. Heck, even if I, as I edit this report, I see that there's a new UN report out there claiming that we could end world hunger by 2030 for something like $330 billion dollars. Naturally, nearby, I see another article that notes that America's billionaires have seen their fortunes increase by $400 billion since the start of the pandemic. So, if America's billionaires only consented to returning to being slightly richer than they were in March 2020, then we could end world hunger. Or, if you want to put it in different terms, that this is approximately what it costs to run the US military for around five and a half months. Their annual budget in 2020 was $721 billion. A 4% cut in the US military budget over the next decade could end world hunger, according to this estimate anyway. And yeah, I don't know how reliable this one estimate is from this one study. The point is that even if this is order of magnitude correct, you can see that it is well within our power as a species, as a civilization, in terms of the economic value that we are supposedly producing, to solve these problems. And if you think about it, if the US military were to cut its budget by 4%, who knows, it may pay for itself in terms of the massive global instability that you would avoid due to ending world hunger. If you think that stable, happy, successful countries are producing a great deal of radicalism and exporting it, well, I don't really know how true that is. So when it comes to talking about this lack of progress in development, I do think that Hickel is a bit too pessimistic in places. He does lightly gloss over certain positive developments that have happened in spite of the unfairness of the economic system and the power relations that are going on in the world today. When Truman gave his speech, for example, 44% of the world's population were illiterate. That's now just 14%, although it is still shockingly high in the number of nations around the world for no very good reason. And although we will talk more about the statistics later, it is true that by some different measures, Fewer people are in poverty now than they were in, say, 1960. I think Hickel, to back up his thesis that things aren't working as they should, I think he's occasionally too quick to dismiss some of the progress that has been made. But there is a caveat to that, and it's all about these definitions of how you make progress, and also what should really count as progress given what we're doing to the planet in the process. There are a lot of different ways that you can spin eye-catching statistics. One of the more detailed sections of the book deals with how definitions for things like what counts as poverty and what counts as hunger are regularly tweaked and changed by organisations like the UN, usually to give a better account of the progress that has supposedly been made. 
For example, the world poverty line, the amount of money in dollars per day which is classed as extreme poverty, that the World Bank has used is, is regularly shifting to usually to make sure as if it seems that fewer people are in poverty. One thing that's happened, for example, with one of the UN's Millennium Development Goals was to change the target. Initially, it was expressed in terms of people living in poverty. They wanted to have no more than a billion people below the poverty line, say. Then it was changed to the proportion of people living in poverty. That might make for an easier target. But you can argue that if your aim is to minimise human suffering, it's allowing perhaps millions to go hungry at the stroke of a pen compared to the other target. And this is obviously because the proportion will change with the global population rather than just the uh, raw number of people who you don't want to be in poverty anymore. Other tricks have included shifting the baseline that you measure from. So for example, targets get changed so that changes are measured from earlier in history. One development goal, for example, shifted from being from a baseline of 2000 to 1990 when it was redefined. So that allowed them to count another 10 years of progress towards the goal. Goals and statistics are shifted, played with and toyed with, usually so that you can make positive declarations that you are succeeding in your fight against global poverty and sell a positive narrative that doesn't rock the boat too much. All of this rang a pretty clear bell in my head. It's very similar to what we've seen occur in the politics surrounding climate science. When the idea of a 2 degrees Celsius limit of global warming was first introduced, it was actually seen as a dangerous upper limit. If we go above this limit, here be unpredictable monsters. Something that we couldn't possibly exceed would be this 2 degrees Celsius limit. Now it's our target, and it will be considered a massive global success if we manage to achieve it. Similarly, people will argue for different baselines to measure temperature increase from. For example, some people have argued for using a more near-term baseline between 1960 and 1980, which already includes some anthropogenic CO2 warming. If you do this, this increases our carbon budgets relative to using a baseline that's earlier and includes the pre-industrial period, and that makes our goals easier to achieve. So we're saying that we don't want 1.5 degrees of warming relative to, say, 1970 versus 1.5 degrees of warming relative to, say, 1850. And that makes our goals easier to achieve. We don't need to cut our emissions nearly as quickly to achieve the goal. And this in turn is done to allow politicians to sell a narrative where the target is still achievable. So it's no surprise to see that similar shenanigans occur in the race to eliminate global poverty, another place where the powers that be want to say that we're making great progress so that we don't question why so little is actually being achieved and whether we're really going about this in the right way at all. Another example of this sort of doctoring of statistics came up recently uh, on my feed from an organisation called the Ludwig Institute for Shared Prosperity. It concerns the US unemployment rate. Back in January 2020, pre-COVID, everyone was celebrating record lows in unemployment. The official unemployment rate was just 3.6%. The issue is that the official figure is only one way of calculating who you define as unemployed, and of course, only one way of looking at unemployment. You're looking at the whole issue of employment, and you're distilling it down so there's a one percentage statistic. In the same way as people are looking at the whole issue of global poverty, the whole issue of global income distribution, the whole issue of global wealth, and trying to reduce it down to number of people below an arbitrary line. Of course, to an extent, you have to do this, because if you want to quantify things, you have to come up with a quantity. But as listeners to our episode with Dr. Smith will remember... The issue with doing this is that there's so many different ways you can come to this number, and inevitably, 
the way that you do it will always, always exclude some of the detail and the nuance from the situation. So this Ludwig Institute has basically calculated their own version of unemployment. So the, the official figure uh, excludes people who have stopped looking for work due to being discouraged or who are not actively applying for jobs. And it also excludes people who have some part-time work or shift work that pays very low wages. So under the official definition, you have to be actively looking for work and you must be earning no money at all from labour. But if you expand the definition to include the underemployed, basically anyone who wants a full-time job that pays a living wage of $20,000 a year but can't get one, then the rate is actually 23.4% among adults. In COVID times in September 2020, the official unemployment rate was 7.9%, but the true unemployment or underemployment rate was 26.1%, according to the Ludwig Institute. And indeed, they note that just 43% of American adults have a full-time job that pays over $20,000 a year. So what is the real unemployment rate? Well, obviously it depends. I would argue that counting someone who is in full-time work on the minimum wage as unemployed, as the Ludwig Institute technically does, is a little nonsensical. But excluding people who have given up looking for work, or who only have meagre earnings from part-time's work, which is millions and millions of people in the gig economy, if you exclude them from your sort of rosy record-low unemployment figure, you're clearly not telling the whole story about how the economy is working for people and how employment is working for people. In much the same way, of course, if everyone earns just one cent over some arbitrarily defined poverty line, you've hardly solved the problem. All of this is to say, of course, that even though we will quote many of them in the course of these episodes, the use of these soundbitey statistics should always make you slightly concerned. Measuring these things and defining them is extremely difficult. In lots of cases, things like the data used to make the estimate is of course really tricky to gather. The methodology is something you can dispute until the cows come home. You can try and get around the problem by looking at a range of different statistics. For the employment in the US example, you could say that you wanted to look at something more holistic. For example, a breakdown of earnings per year and who falls into which category. Then you have a better sense of what people's incomes are, regardless of their type of employment. All of these attempts to describe these huge global problems by the numbers inevitably distill things down to one number and therefore leave a lot of subtleties out. And this means that there are going to be as many different ways of slicing and dicing it to come to different conclusions as you like. Now I think that Hickel does a good job of citing his sources and defining his methodology, as well as why he thinks that some ways of measuring things like poverty are more justified than others. But of course, I think in the course of this, it's fair to say he does emphasise the statistics that back up his point, as we all do in life, and this tends to mean downplaying some of the progress that has been made, just as defenders of the status quo like to talk up the statistics that back up what they're talking about. That said, I'm always of the opinion that you need to compare to what's possible rather than just comparing to the past. For example, a recent viral tweet praised the current global economic and political system for lifting people out of poverty. Indeed, by these statistics, which defines poverty as people earning less than $1.90 a day, you had 1.9 billion at this level of poverty in 1981, and 653 million in 2018. That sounds very good. But then you consider what's happened to the global economy in that time. It has grown from $35 trillion to $115 trillion in 2011 dollars. In other words, in that time we've tripled the total value of goods and services in the world economy. Much of this is due to technological advances that we have made as a species. 
Much of this is due to the work of those very same poor people who are growing the food or working in the factories that produce these goods in many cases. Our refusal to share the proceeds of all this incredible work we've accomplished as a species, even slightly more fairly and equitably, is what is creating this poverty. It is in no way mathematically or economically inevitable. Let's assume that those people who still earn less than $1.90 a day earn on average half of that, which is likely a pessimistic estimate. We could erase poverty by this metric for just $225 billion a year, which is just 0.2% of GDP today. In other words, if our current economic system was willing to give just 0.2% more of its proceeds to the bottom 10% of its people, it would have eliminated poverty by this metric. If global economic growth is supposed to be this great engine, lifting people out of poverty efficiently and effectively, as many advocates like to claim, and therefore we need do nothing else other than continue to grow the economy, we sure are funneling an awful lot of the profits and proceeds of that growth to people who really don't need any more, when just a slightly better distribution of that income and growth would be enough to erase poverty by this definition. And this comes to the fundamental point I make whenever people talk about some level of inequality as being necessary. It probably is but they are never willing to justify this level of inequality. No one is saying that it is simply impossible to have a world where just 0.2% more of the world's GDP goes to the bottom 10% of the world's people. Clearly, the entire global economic system wouldn't crack up if you did that. Yet if this was done, it would erase extreme poverty by the metric that fans of the current global order are crowing about as a mark of success. Which tells you something, doesn't it? And if developing nations are indeed free to develop and follow the path to wealth and prosperity that we have done in the West, then it sure is taking an awfully long time. It's more than 70 years now since Truman first declared his intention to make this the case, and evidently it has not yet happened. Hickel draws on his own experience of working in development and once believing in this narrative to make a compelling case. He lived in Swaziland, where he was born, and later worked there for World Vision, a charity. Initially, there was enthusiasm about what they might be able to accomplish, but then he describes what happened. Quote, On the whole, nothing really seemed to be changing. Why did Swaziland's people remain so poor despite our efforts? It felt like we were shoveling sand into a bottomless pit. As helpful as our projects were, they did nothing to address the actual causes of problems. Why were farmers unable to make a living off the land? Subsidised foods from the US and EU undercut local agriculture. Why was the government unable to provide basic social services? because it was buried under a pile of foreign debt and had been forced by Western banks to cut social spending in order to prioritise repayment. It gradually became clear that the global economic system was organised in such a way as to make meaningful development impossible. End quote. This is really the fundamental contention of the divide, that despite the narratives of charity and economic growth in developing countries being the things that will lift them out of poverty, the poverty is really not because we haven't had enough economic growth or because we haven't had enough charity yet, but because it's being imposed from the outside by unfair economic and geopolitical structures. As long as these systems exist then, according to Hickel, a lot of charitable efforts, regardless of how well-intentioned, will just be a sticking plaster. Quite often, of course, these efforts come in at the end of the problem rather than at the start, trying to stop AIDS victims from dying rather than preventing people from contracting it in the first place through better education and public health systems, which could be funded by better provisioned governments trying to provide food and water to people who are stuck in famines and droughts, rather than preventing famine and water shortages in the first place, as we were able to do in wealthier nations and so on. As anyone will tell you, an ounce of prevention is worth a gram of cure. The Covid crisis alone should have taught us this. How much value would there have been in throwing resources at the problem in January and February, rather than waiting until things had already got out of hand? How much more resources do we need to expend now to try and solve the problem 
as I write this in October, compared to what we could have done earlier on in pandemic preparation in previous years. So this is quite a big contention that neither charity and foreign aid nor economic growth are going to alleviate poverty in the near future, as we have effectively been promising that they will do over the last century or so. Let's dig into why this claim is made with apologies if anyone has heard this story before. According to Hickel, the reason why foreign aid and charity are proving unsuccessful at making a very big dent in the problem of global poverty and inequality is simply because the flows of cash from poor countries to rich countries far exceed the flows of cash from rich nations to poor nations. Although the narrative of foreign aid would have us believe that, on average, wealthy Western nations are net creditors to poor nations, the reverse is actually often the case. The Global Financial Integrity Centre at the Norwegian School of Economics published a study on this topic. You can see from this that, for example, the amount of foreign aid provided by wealthy countries is around 140 billion a year in 2015, but that developing countries pay 200 billion a year on interest on loans, much of which goes to big banks in London and New York. According to the Jubilee Debt Campaign, this has increased since Hickel wrote the book and is now at around 350 billion a year being paid from developing nations to developed nations in the form of debt interest. In other words, even if only debt and foreign aid existed as flows of money, then the interest repayments on debt more than outstrip foreign aid. I noted that from the YouGov survey in the UK that the most popular thing that people think the government should spend less money on is foreign aid. Well, our country has an interesting history with referendums, but I think it would be quite interesting, wouldn't it, to have a referendum that said, let's make sure that the net flow of money between the UK and less economically developed countries is zero. In other words, we would cancel all of the debt repayments, and we would also cancel all of the foreign aid. I'm sure a lot of people might agree to that. Whereas in actual fact, who knows, it may indeed end up making us less wealthy than the alternative. There are serious expenditures for governments in poorer countries just to repay the debt interest. Angola spends 55% of its governmental revenue on debt repayments. For Lebanon, Ghana and Chad, it's 40%. For Jamaica, Grenada, Sri Lanka and Tunisia, it's around 25%. Compare this to the UK, where just 5% of our government's revenue is spent on servicing its debt. And of course, it's not the same thing because just a quarter of the UK government's debt is owed to foreign investors. And so only a tiny fraction of the UK government's revenue goes abroad to pay off debts owed to foreign investors, which is not the case for developing countries. In the case of the rest of the interest service on debt, you're talking about the interest on bonds, which can be held to uh, held by individuals and institutional investors. So that's a sort of way of funneling some tax money, I suppose you might say, towards the people who own UK government bonds. So while we might only have 1 or 2% of our tax revenue flowing out of the country in the form of interests on bonds that's held by foreign countries, the developing countries might have 20-40% of their government's tax revenue flowing out of the country in the form of interests on debt repayment. Now it's true that the analogy where governments are really a bit like households and their finances can be compared to private individuals is often very misleading. But one way in which the situations can be compared is that it's more expensive to be poor than it is to be wealthy. If you're poor, the credit that's available to you is on much worse terms. This debt is the equivalent of racking up loans from a payday lender rather than the bank. The rates of interest charged are much more exorbitant, and so it's difficult to ever pay it off. And of course, similarly, 
as poor people have to spend more and more money on daily living expenses than wealthy people who don't have to rent things and who don't have to solve the myriad problems and expenses that come with being poor, so poor nations have to constantly spend money fending off these crises and, and less on uh, the economic development that would allow them to pay their bills. This is, of course, the area where the household analogy is very wrong for governments, because a government, through wise expenditure, can in fact increase its revenue, which is not the case for most households, unless you're starting a business, and you can spend money to make money in the form of that business, so to speak. In the aggregate, then, since 1980, developing countries have paid over $5 trillion to the developed world in the form of debt repayments. Now, these debts come from a variety of sources. Some arise from loans that are taken out by corrupt dictators. Others, such as Sri Lanka's debt, arise from loans that were taken out to address natural disasters, with a good portion of that coming from the Boxing Day tsunami in 2004. Many more of these loans showed up after the oil crisis in the 1970s, when banks were keen to lend to the Global South, who wanted money to shift towards industrialization, but also to pay for oil, which had become extremely expensive in the midst of the crisis, yet was necessary for transporting pretty much anything around. One tidbit that Hickel points out when it comes to the development of these loans historically is that the people who pushed these loans onto developing countries were paid participation fees, a slice of the loan that you get to keep as a bonus. So selling a $100 million loan to a dictator, even knowing that it might be siphoned straight into a Swiss bank account in corruption, would net you substantial profits. You were actually incentivized by this structure to push as big a loan and as unpayable a loan onto a dodgy as possible uh, debtor as you can. And over that decade in the Global South, debt stocks quadrupled. And because much of that money went to covering rising oil prices rather than development, there wasn't much prospect for these countries to grow economically and repay their loans. So nations started to default on their loans. Now, arguably, if you agree the terms of a loan with someone and they cannot afford to repay you, then you lose out. You take on the risk of their defaulting, and that's how you set the interest rate on the loan in the first place. If you're loaning to someone who you're pretty sure will be able to pay you back, such as, for example, the interest rates for a UK or US government borrowing, then you're going to have a low interest rate because you have a very low risk of default. If, on the other hand, you're not so convinced that your person is going to be able to pay you back, then you will charge them a very high interest rate to compensate for the fact that they might default. This is a crucial point, and it's made very well by David Graeber in his wonderful book Debt, The First 5,000 Years. In it, he talks about some of the moral dimensions of debt, and the moral obligations associated with debt. We typically assume that it is only moral to ask that you simply must pay your debts, that this is the moral obligation that applies. But there is also a moral obligation on behalf of the lender. If you are lending someone money, then the whole point is that the lender takes on some risk and charges interest in exchange for taking on that risk. There is no issue with that, because banks and other lenders get to choose who they lend money to. That's why I can't walk into the bank and demand a million pounds to expand my podcast empire. If they did loan me the money, and I wasn't able to pay them back, which would be quite likely, then it would be their fault for making such a silly loan, and that's why they won't do it. So you might expect that banks, if they're dumb or greedy enough to lend masses of money to impoverished countries who won't be able to afford repayment, then the bank should suffer at least some of the consequences for entering into that bad loan in the first place. Morally speaking, they should, just as I wouldn't agree to loan someone my life savings if I didn't think they could ever pay me back. But in our global financial system, another option arises due to the International Monetary Fund, or IMF. 
The IMF finances the loan repayments for the developing nations, but in exchange they are forced to shift their economies according to a structural adjustment plan. Typically what this means is that the IMF will pay down the loan initially as it's due, but they will force the government to make changes. Typically, in order to repay the loan, they will ask the governments to cut public spending on things like farming, food, healthcare and so on, and direct them to loan repayment. You have to cut wages for public sector workers and generally shrink the size of the government to repay the loans. These structural adjustment plans were imposed on countries like Mexico, Argentina, Brazil, India, and later others. So the point here is these countries are not allowed to default on their debt. Instead, someone comes in and makes them renegotiate the terms of the loan, and one of the conditions of doing that is to essentially compel them to change the way that they're running their government, change the way they're running their state, and direct more money towards loan repayment. Similarly, any industries that are run by the government have to be privatised, often at knockdown prices because they're being compelled to sell them. In addition, countries are required to cut trade tariffs, open and liberalise their markets, and curb regulations on labour and the environment and the movement of capital. In other words, these structural adjustment plans essentially implement a kind of Chicago, a kind of neoliberal economics are some of the terms that people would use to describe them, and they reduce the size of the state. And the idea behind it, supposedly, is that this will encourage some foreign investment and it will force the countries to repay their loans more quickly. So yes, it will encourage some foreign investment, but only by making the country into a bargain basement place for labour and reducing the quality of life for the people who live there. Foreign investment will be attracted by the fact that you now have a country that effectively has no limits to how much money you can throw in and take out again, uh, a country that has fewer environmental and labour regulations and is therefore cheaper to do business in at the expense of the quality of life for the people who live there. With no capital controls, these investors are free to shift their money and their profits elsewhere. So in effect, free trade might be good for the West if it means we can sell manufactured goods to the global south and prevent their domestic industries from developing, while buying up cheaper, possibly undervalued raw materials from the global south. But the idea here is that the trade that's imposed is inherently unequal and unjust. We get to export our goods and sometimes services to countries in the global south, while they have to exchange an unfair amount of the raw resources that they can produce for us. Now, from Hickel's point of view, the way that economies can develop, and were developing in the 1950s and 1960s in the Global South, prior to this debt crisis and prior to the imposement of structural adjustment plans, involves things like significant government spending on solving social problems, tariffs which allow them to build up their domestic manufacturing capacity and other industries, and regulations which prevent capital from flying around everywhere. This kind of model was known as developmentalism in the countries that pursued it. And Hickel makes this argument because this is the model that countries in the US and Europe were actually able to follow initially. When they were building up their domestic industries, they had things like tariffs, they had things like significant government expenditure to build up industries, uh, to build up education, to build up healthcare, to build up and solve these social problems and make the country as a whole more productive. And they had things like capital restrictions, which prevented foreign investors from just taking their money out as soon as they wanted to. So all of these things that the US and Europe had while we were building up our economies, the structural adjustment plans now deny to countries in the global south as part of the uh, obligation to repay their debts, as part of the IMF bailout that they've received. 
So from his perspective, rather than benefiting people in these countries, as these policies are supposedly opening up the developing nation economies for foreign investment, they are instead really just a form of asset stripping. It's effectively insisting on free trade and deregulation for these economies when you have them over a big barrel of debt, and can therefore negotiate entirely on your own terms. And this is again, as we said, the Chicago economic school, uh, neoliberal policies essentially. Naturally, this is good for the lenders and good for the World Bank who helps finance this. They can sell this debt on Wall Street, returning high rates of profit at 15% a year in some cases, and the lenders will get their interest repayments on time because the governments are being compelled to spend large amounts of their tax revenue on repaying the debt. And of course, in the cases where the IMF bailed them out, the IMF pays for it. Incidentally, there is something of a parallel here to the 2008-2009 financial crisis. Subprime mortgage lenders made stupidly risky loans to people who couldn't afford to pay them back to get them to buy overpriced houses. This inflated a housing bubble. Then banks repackaged these loans as assets and traded them around, even getting massively into debt off the back of these so-called assets. They, They leveraged them many times over. Ultimately, of course, the whole debt bubble collapsed and caused the global economic crisis that we all remember. But ultimately, the people who made these risky loans were bailed out in many cases by the government. They never really paid that much of the price for making these risky loans in the first place, just as the banks who have now collected so much money from their loans to the developing countries in the 1970s have also never paid the actual price for making those risky loans in the first place. So even if you are a free market extremist, someone who believes that governmental intervention is not helpful and that free markets should be allowed to do their thing, you have to understand that (laughs) you're not actually being a free market absolutist here because you are happy for these big government to come in and (laughs) bail out these industries, uh, bail out these loan makers and not allow them to fail as would be the natural order of things. The system can only regulate itself if people get stung when they make bad loans. Otherwise, what is your incentive to prevent you from making bad loans if you know that at some point uh, the state is going to bail out your industry and your bank for having done so, and prevent anyone who's actually involved in making these decisions from facing any consequences for it? Remember we said that the people who actually negotiated these loans in the first place were given a fraction of the loan as recompense. And when those loans turned bad, those people did not have to give that money back. Therefore, the incentive structure for them is all completely shot. Which means that even if you are indeed a free market absolutist, you have to understand that there is a corruption of the system that you would claim to ideologically be in favour of. And evidently, it's not one that is making the system function very well. It's creating a perverse incentive structure, which is causing these big global problems. But if the aim of these structural adjustment programs and this liberalising of trade that the free trade evangelists would say is so important was to allow these developing countries to develop more quickly and grow economically so that they could pay off their debts, then they have been a miserable failure. So we really have these two competing ideas here, right? One idea is that the best way for a country to develop, at least initially, is by this government-led process where you impose tariffs, you have a bit of protectionism, you spend money on developing your own education and your industries, and the government leads investment, which then enables the private sector to take off off the back of that. It's sort of New Deal-type politics in some ways. The other alternative is to say, no, what you have to do is remove all barriers, remove all regulations, remove everything, 
and then foreign investment will come in and it will give you that kickstart to your economy that will allow you to develop. Of course, the problem is that given that you don't have these capital controls, that foreign investment can just leave again. Uh, and given that you don't have that much control over the ways in which you're negotiating the flows of trade, you may be getting ripped off, but that's by the by. The point is that we actually have an example of what's happened here. We, we, we know what has happened to these countries. These countries that have been uh, forced by the structural adjustment plans into utterly opening up their economies to foreign trade. Have they actually had this massive economic growth that the Chicago economists would have said they should have expected? Well, if you look at GDP per capita, that's a crude measure, but it's the one we all use for an economy. Look at Latin America and Sub-Saharan Africa. Prior to the SAPs, these countries were growing. In the 1980s, after the SAPs are imposed, that growth stops. In Latin America, it levels off so that the economy is basically the same size in 2000 as it was in 1980. In Sub-Saharan Africa, the economy actually shrinks, erasing all of the gains of the last 20 years. Robert Pollin, an economist, calculated that the developing countries lost approximately $480 billion per year in GDP under the structural adjustment plans, compared to the programme that they had before the debt crisis. Foreign aid during that time was less than $100 billion a year. So not only are debt repayments outstripping foreign aid by a substantial margin, but also the harsh economic terms imposed on countries to force them to repay these debts by the IMF are also costing them around five times what they get in foreign aid. So more money than goes out in foreign aid is flowing in in the form of debt, and you've also lost more from the fact that your economy can't develop along the same lines that it was doing before. Now, of course, there is an argument here to be made about what the real counterfactual is uh, in the case of what should have happened if there weren't structural adjustment plans, and if these countries had been allowed to continue along their developmentalist points of view. Um, I think... Of course, when it comes to these global economic systems, we can never know. But it is interesting that you have a causal mechanism for the slowdown in growth in these countries over the relevant decades. Uh, you have evidence that it's linked to the SAPs. And also, frankly, if these SAPs are supposed to allow these countries to grow so quickly that they're going to pay off their debts, it, it's obviously a failed policy that has been imposed on them from the outside. So even if you dispute this precise figure that Pollen came up with by extrapolating the growth that they would otherwise have had, which is only ever notional, you can still see that clearly you're paying down more uh, than you're getting in foreign aid in debt repayments, and also the restructuring of your economy has prevented any growth that might have taken place otherwise. So clearly, it's a very bad deal. Another point that is made in the book is that People who are optimists on global development will often point to aggregate figures across the world. So, for example, they will point to the number of people who are living on more than one dollar a day. But many of the gains that have been made against poverty have been made in China. Now, obviously it's an understatement to say that the government in China has problems. But broadly speaking, it's been able to insulate itself from interference by the IMF and these other international institutions. It hasn't taken the SAP route of large-scale privatisation of industries and public austerity. Instead, China was able to follow its own policies for economic growth. So instead of having these free market policies forcibly imposed when the economy wasn't ready, China was allowed to develop with an initially state-led growth model, before allowing the private sector in on its own terms. Now, China has had economic growth, 
And of course it owes a lot to aspects of capitalism. But only free market capitalism imposed on China's own terms. It didn't have to open up and liberalise its markets until it was economically ready to do so. And that Chinese economic growth, which in part owes to capitalism, has helped to lift over half of its population out of extreme poverty since 1990. So in Hickel's view, the measurements of progress against poverty have to take into account the fact that it's hardly been uniform everywhere, and that much of the progress is in one, albeit very important, nation, which hasn't followed the standard Western prescription for development, and has actually been more insulated from outside interference. China was, of course, influenced economically, historically, but it was never colonised, and it was never subject to structural adjustment programmes which changed how its economy developed. I, I emphasise the point that China is, is fundamentally a capitalist country because when it comes to the distinctions between capitalism and communism and socialism, the, the levels of, of ignorance and misinformation that you commonly find around the place are just beggaring belief. People saying that China today is a communist country, no, no it isn't. They, they may have communism in their name, but that is no more meaningful than the fact that the National Socialist Party, the Nazis in Germany, have socialism in their name because they sure as hell weren't socialists either. So from Hickel's perspective then, what happened after the oil crisis hit was, a, was really a form of disaster capitalism for the less wealthy countries. Exploiting the crisis to make these loans in the first place, and then impose the austerity, structural adjustment and so on, that's essentially what the West did. And you can see how this sort of holds people back. I mean, imagine that you're training to be a doctor, or a lawyer, or some other high salary job you take out a student loan to help you do it. Halfway through your training, the loan is called in. Rather than letting you develop to your full potential and get a good salary that lets you repay the debt, your creditors force you to go and work minimum wage and then turn any meagre profits you're left with over to them at the end of every week. They won't even let you buy medicine when you get sick. This is the equivalent of a country like a Lebanon who are forced to spend nearly half their budget on foreign debt service, more than twice as much as they do on health and education combined. You're stuck in a debt trap, and when that's what's going on, small amounts of handouts from charity organisations are not really going to help you that much. These financial structures and the imposed combination of austerity, markets being forced open, and privatisation are effective mechanisms in what's often referred to as neo-colonialism. And with the structures of neo-colonialism firmly in place now, I think that's where we'll leave off the first part of this book club episode, and join me next time for the second half. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. Remember, you can find us on the web at physicspodcast.com, where if you have any comments, questions, concerns, things you'd like to hear more of, things you'd like to hear less of, uh, questions about what you've heard, uh, topics you'd like to discuss, you can get in touch with us on physicspodcast.com. There is the contact form there goes to my email, I try and respond to all of the questions that I get, and if it's interesting, if it's a good discussion we have, then I will feature it on a future episode. There are many ways that you can support the podcast. You can support us on Patreon, that is patreon.com slash physicalattraction, where you'll get access to early episodes. Thank you to all of the patrons who have done that already. You'll also get access to some bonus episodes that you can't get anywhere else. There's a PayPal link on the website where you can go if you just want to give us a one-off donation. Uh, we're on Twitter, PhysicsPod, Facebook, Physical Attraction. There's plenty of different ways that you can engage with the show. But of course, the most important thing you can do is to tell other people who might be interested to give it a listen. Until next time then, please do take care.